This is C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. This week, Nick Tabor discusses his book, Africa Town, America's Last Slave Ship and the Community It Created. He traces the history and impact of nearby industries on Africa Town in Alabama, a community established by the last slaves brought to the U.S. in 1860. He's interviewed by White House Environmental Justice Advisory Council Vice Chair Catherine Flowers. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Congratulations on your new book, Africa Town, America's Last Slave Ship and the Community It Created. I was very intrigued when I read read it, and especially uh, I was intrigued by um, why you were inspired to write this book. And I guess, you know, that's a good place to start. Why were you inspired to write this book? I think it is a good place to start. Uh, this began in 2018 when Zora Neale Hurston's book, Barracoon, was being published. You know, it had been um, on the shelf for 90 years after she wrote it. It's her... It consists of her interviews with Kudjo Lewis, who was one of the last living <coughs> survivors of the Clotilda's voyage, uh, the, the voyage of the last slave ship brought to the U.S. And um, we were publishing an excerpt of the book in New York Magazine. My editor, Lori Abraham, called me in and said, hey, um, it would be really nice if we could have another story to run alongside this one uh, about what became of the descendants of Kudjo. So see if you can track them down. And and she said, maybe we'll send you to Mobile. And it turned out to be um, easier said than done to find them. They had The family had intentionally kept a low profile. Uh, but when I first got a member um, of that family on the phone, Gary Lumbers, um, who was living near Philadelphia, um, I remember I was in this hotel room in West Texas working on another story, and Gary said to me pretty forcefully, you don't need to be writing about the descendants. What you should be writing about is the neighborhood. Um, he said, "When I, the neighborhood established by the people who had survived the slave voyage uh, and, because it's still intact. Uh, it's this amazing historical treasure, but, but Gary said, uh, it, it looks like a war zone now. He said, when I was a kid, it was this beautiful, thriving community, and now uh, they've built a highway through the center of the neighborhood, um, it's surrounded by factories. There's all this pollution. A lot of the houses are abandoned. Um, what happened to it? He felt like it had been. This wasn't just a natural process of decay, but it was. It was like a hostile takeover. And so I, I said, "Well, that's. I would like to write about that. That's a, that's a good um, 
that it's a good idea, but you know, first I do need to write this piece about the descendants. So, I, but I wrote about both for the magazine. I managed to visit, and I met all these. I happened to be there on a day when a law firm was um, interviewing people at one of the churches in preparation for a, um, a lawsuit they were filing against a factory that had polluted the neighborhood, um, suing them on the basis that they had caused cancer um, f- for hundreds or thousands of people. And so I, uh, I, I spoke to quite a few residents who rattled off lists of all the f- people in their families who had, who had died from cancer, often at young ages, and, and people who had survived cancer themselves. It, it, these stories were harrowing. And um, so I, I went back to New York, and for a year or so, in the back of my head, I, I kept thinking, I wish that I could just move down there and piece together the whole history of this community um, from 1860 to now and figure out the connection between the slave ship and the pollution. Like, why did this neighborhood of all possible places on southern Alabama sort of get designated to be the dumping ground um, for all all of these, for all this heavy industry? And then it occurred to me one day um, when I was walking from my office to the subway that I probably actually could do that, and you know, a publisher would would um, would give me a contract for it. So I started tapping out a chapter outline on my phone that night, and uh, or on, excuse me, on the subway ride, and I emailed my um, my agent when I got home, and and she, you know, a long email <laughs> describing what I wanted to do, and she she called me in the morning and said, "This is a great idea. You should pursue it." Wow, that's awesome. So. You know, as, as I read the book, um, I saw the book as just as much a historical narrative, you know, as anything. Uh, and, and I I guess for me, I was drawn into it because some of my history is wrapped in there, too. But I'd like for you to talk a little bit about how you did the research on, uh, you know, the part of Africa where people were brought from, where enslaved people were brought from. And could you... And, and describing it, talk a little bit about um, what was it like at that particular time because the United States had ended the importation of slaves, but the mayors and and the and the foster gentlemen that did this uh, that went there and, and brought enslaved people back, how were they able to do that? And then what were the consequences, if any, that they suffered from doing that? Yeah, happy to, to speak about all of that. Um, my my initial instinct is that is, was that I was going to need to go to West Africa to research this, but um, the COVID lockdowns took hold not too long after I started the book in earnest, and so I I thought well let me let me figure out what I can do without going there, and I realized pretty quickly that um, that I didn't need to go there uh, because what I wanted to do was describe what um, what these countries and what these cities in West Africa looked like uh, in the 1850s and 1860s. And um, so the best sources, the best resources for that were like travelogues um, and, and then and, um, academic history. Uh, so I, I, I did it all from, from reading. So we have quite a few, and these are oral cultures in, in West Africa that at the time were not... Um, Recording their history in books, so um, so unfortunately, uh, the best sources we have on on what things looked like 
uh, in the 1850s are travelogues written by white men, you know, usually European men who would travel around the African continent and and just keep sort of a day-by-day um, account of what they saw. And, you know, of course, we have to take everything they say with a grain of salt. There's, a, like, a pretty clear colonial mentality um, at work in these books. Uh, but at the same time, I think that, you know, when they're saying, like, I went to the market and, you know, they were selling X, Y, and Z, you can sort of believe that that's, you know, that is what the market looked like and that is what they were selling. Uh, fortunately, there's quite a vast body of scholarship from the last 50 years um, that has uh, built on on the work of these these you know 19th century Europeans, but put it in context. It's, you know, these historians have read it critically, and so and and have and have um, also done work on the ground in West Africa um, to help sort of put these these books in context. So so I relied. I took a lot of cues from from. Um, from scholars of West Africa, and I also had a couple of them vet uh, different chapters. So um, the situation was that this this country, the Kingdom of Dahomey, had for a long time depended on the slave trade um, for as the basis of its economy. Uh, in the 1850s, most Western countries had stopped uh, or, or had stopped trafficking in slaves. Um, England, in particular, was was cracking down on it. The Royal Navy policed um, the Atlantic Ocean pretty heavily, uh, uh, but Dahomey was, um, you know, reluctant to sort of go along with the Europeans' plan for a transition to a an economy based on palm oil exports. So, um, so it was a it was a kingdom in tra- in, in crisis, and. Um, that was the context for for this this last slave voyage in the in Alabama there was this um, also sort of an economy in crisis the the cotton trade was booming uh, there was this huge demand for enslaved workers um, but uh, it had been illegal for fifty years to bring slaves over from West Africa so um, so as really, I think, an act of political protest, this man in Mobile, this business magnate named Timothy Mayer, told some associates, I'm going to bring over a ship of enslaved people and I'm going to get away with it. Like he said, that, you know, the federal government is saying they're going to crack down on these things, but I don't believe them and I'm going to prove that you can do it without consequence. And, and I think that he intended for this to be sort of a volley um, you know, shot from from the side of these all of these southern businessmen who were actively agitating to to reopen the slave trade. So he arranged to have it done. Uh, the the captain who he hired was a man named Bill Foster, who was a ship carpenter, um, grew, uh, grew up in Nova Scotia, and in the spring of 1860, Foster went to the port of Ouida in the Gulf of Guinea and brought back a ship with 110 men, women, and children, sneaked it through Mobile Bay, unloaded uh, the captives on another ship, and then burned his ship down to the waterline to destroy the evidence. Uh, there's very clear paper trail showing that federal officials knew all about this voyage, um, had a chance to 
had a, had a chance actually to rescue these captives. The federal marshal, the U.S. marshal, found them uh, in, in sort of being hidden on a plantation, but he he couldn't get a warrant in order to make arrests quickly enough. The judge, who was friends with Timothy Mayer, dragged his feet, and there were no consequences for any of the criminals involved. Wow. So did all of the, and I understand there were 101 people, enslaved people, that were part of that voyage. Were all of them, did all of them settle in Africatown? It was 110, in fact. Uh, The majority did not. Quite a few of them were sold uh, to businessmen, to slave owners um, outside the city of Mobile. In a lot of cases, we don't know exactly where they ended up, but um, we know that some of them ended up in in northern parts of Alabama. Uh, The mayors kept quite a few themselves, and there were, it was a few dozen, uh, 30, 35, who who started this community um, that, that, you know, that became known as Africatown after the Civil War. Let's talk about Africatown. I mean, I've, I've always been fascinated with Pujo Lewis and his story because I've heard it myself for, for quite a long time before it became, you know, part of uh, what we we're discussing now. Mm-hmm. And uh, just what, 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 what new things that you learn about him? I know there's, there's a lot of uh, folklore that, that I've heard through the years. And, and then in reading your book, I saw that you, you, you dug down really deep and talked to a lot of people about Africatown and about Cujo Lewis and his influence, as well as looking at the, the, uh, the historical sources. So what did, you know, after doing your research, um, do you, can you reveal something new about him? That Does this book reveal something new about him that we don't already know? You know, I, I found um, scraps of like news coverage from, say, the turn of the 20th century that I hadn't found mentioned in any other books. Um, one interview, for instance, where where he and the other shipmates said that they actually saved enough money after right after the Civil War to go back to Bill Foster, the ship captain, and ask him to uh, to sail them back to West Africa, and he said that's that's not nearly enough money. You know, this was a business proposition. This is business venture, and and I'm not going to do this as charity. And I'm sorry, but there's just no way that you're ever going to be able to to make enough money to pay me to do that. So so there, I found details like that 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 had not been reported before. But I would say that to me, one of the more memorable and and sort of startling discoveries about his life was that it, it's something that's it's it's a little bit more contextual. He describes in the late chapters of Barracoon this sequence where everyone in his family dies in pretty rapid succession. He had six children and uh, and a wife who all died in the space of between 15 and 20 years. And in most cases, the, myster- the, the circumstances seem a bit mysterious. He'll say in Barracoon something like, and then my son, who was perfectly healthy, in his 30s, just fell ill, like went to bed, and then was sick for two or three days, and then he passed away, and and we we don't really know what happened, and there's there's no diagnosis, and so reading these 
like health inspector reports from from Mobile from the, the turn of the 20th century, I realized what was going on there. The city was was establishing like plumbing, sewers, paving roads, uh, but it was only doing these within the white neighborhoods. Uh, the, the, all of these improvements tended to stop at the color line, and and the city also decided not to annex these black neighborhoods that were outside uh, of the city limits. Uh, this is a period when Mobile was trying to expand its population, but it was reluctant to bring more African Americans in, into the city. So, so these black neighborhoods like Africatown were effectively left in the 19th century, and these diseases were able to continue festering in neighborhoods like Cudjo's, and I realized that's that's what he's talking about in in Barracoon. He probably didn't have access to information about about, uh, or, or perhaps he did, but but he, um, he doesn't describe it in Barracoon in terms of of these political developments, in terms of in terms of these these Jim Crow laws and mores that were governing. The development of this of the city and the county, but I think that we have to take them together. What he's talking about really is, I think you could say, the first instantiation of environmental racism. It's 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 not pollution. It's it, but it's underdevelopment, um, and it, it, it effectively it's the same thing. It it it, um, it was a uh, it was a product of the Jim Crow mores. And that's that's very significant because what you I think what what the book does is kind of lay lay out uh, a scenario for how we got from there and the connection between enslavement of people and using enslaved labor to where we are now to to have these communities surrounded by all of this pollution uh, and 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 how we got there and so as we go back to Looking at the book, one of the things I noticed um, was the relationship between uh, Timothy Mayer's family and the placement of these uh, polluting plants in Africatown. Could you talk a little bit about that, about the connection between, about their connection to how this came to be and how this community became victims of environmental racism? I would be happy to, yeah. I have to say that when I started this, uh, your book, Catherine, had not yet come out, and I felt like um, there was a real dearth of, of literature on environmental racism, and I felt like what your colleague Brian Stevenson had done uh, and Michelle Alexander had done with with the legal system and what, what others had done with things like housing discrimination and redlining, like we didn't really have books that did that for environmental racism, and, and I, I think both of us are trying to remedy that. So I, I would say that I, I always think about the Reconstruction era where, where one of my favorite Americans, Thaddeus Stevens, he was one of, the, one of the, the radical Republican legislators, gave this speech in Pennsylvania where he said, if we're really serious about about changing things, what we need to do is seize the plantations of these these southern aristocrats, break them up, and give the land to the black people. And he said, we'll achieve two things. We'll, we'll give the black people means to be 
independent and like meaningfully free. It will also break up the power of of the Southern planter class. And Timothy Mayer would have been uh, would have been exactly the the target for that kind of a policy. Mm-hmm. Um, it would have it would have changed everything. It's, I mean, it's easy to imagine in a scenario like that, a lot of his land would have gone to these shipmates, uh, or it, it could could have. It did, that did not happen, obviously. Uh, instead, their their land and their wealth continued to be passed down from generation to generation. In the 1920s, the northern paper industry was making incursions into the south, and this enormous paper conglomerate, International Paper, approached the Chamber of Commerce and said, we'd like to build a plant in Mobile, can you hook us up with a property? And the Chamber of Commerce said, sure, how about this this land that belongs to the Mayer family? Uh, Augustine Mayer, the son of, of, of Timothy. Uh, Timothy was the slaver. And uh, so, of course, the, the people in Africatown had no means of resisting. They, they'd been, they had no, they had no money. <laughs> they had no political power because they'd been stripped of their voting rights. So, so the paper company made a deal with, uh, with the Mayer family. I think everybody knew that this factory was going to be smelly and that it was going to emit huge amounts of pollution, and they, they didn't want it downtown. So it made sense to put it uh, in, in this, this black neighborhood. And so the, the Mayer family uh, ended up leasing or selling land to two paper factories, and over time it, it uh, leased and sold land to, to more factories uh, besides different, different kinds of industries. Uh, now, uh, 160 years after the slave voyage, that family still owns a massive amount of property in southern Alabama, and um, that, and that includes a lot of the land surrounding Africa town that, that these factories are sited on and they've made immense amounts of money from from leasing to these factories that have polluted the neighborhood. Um, the family has avoided public attention for the most part um, since the 1970s, but uh, there are some signs that that they might be that, that they might be opening up. That, that's good to hear. Uh, I want to, to go back to a point that we raised earlier when you talked about oral history. How much did oral history play? Because I, I saw a lot of the interviews that you did, and it's so interesting for me to look at this book and read it because a lot of those people I know, because they've mm-hmm. been around and been fighting and for a very long time for not just environmental justice, but also for civil rights. So how much did oral history play in your research and in, in, in crafting this story? Uh, it, it played a significant role. I I did tend to rely on documentary sources as much as I could, and I, I have to say that I found that many of the descendants of the shipmates are hungry to know what, what we have documented evidence for. They a lot of the descendants pour over the books that have been written about the neighborhood, they, and they and they they like to collect things like marriage certificates and deeds and and old newspaper clips. Um, but but they do have stories that they've that they've passed on along the, among their families uh, that I also 
tried to integrate in 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 the book. Uh, and, and sometimes the line sort of blurs because I was able to find interviews that were done in, say, the 1970s or 80s with earlier generations of, of descendants where they told stories that they knew from their parents, that stories that I never heard um, from, from people who are in the community now or, or who are descendants now. So it was always a, a back and forth between documented uh, documentary sources and oral history. Well, one of the things that, that struck me was was reading about the role of Carter G. Woodson and his role in, in, in this story. Uh, could mm-hmm. you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, this gets us into, into Zora Neale Hurston territory, which is a place where I'm happy to be. Um, I, love, I love Carter G. Woodson, that, as we call him, the father of, of African-American history. He was the editor in the 1920s of the Journal of Negro History, and Zora Neale Hurston was an undergrad at Barnard College uh, here in New York, and her mentor was was uh, Franz Boas, a, a towering figure in American anthropology. As she was getting ready to graduate, he... Uh, Boaz said, I'm going to try to find you a fellowship so you can go do some field research. And he was able to come up with some money from Columbia, and then Carter G. Woodson's organization, too, uh, was able to to come up with some money to, to fund her trip. So she bought a car and drove around the Gulf Coast from her hometown in Florida, uh, which is Eatonville, uh, over to Alabama. She interviewed... Cudjoe Lewis in 1927, and she wrote an article about him that was published uh, in Carter G. Woodson's journal uh, later that year. Uh, unfortunately, we, we found out decades later that that, that interview uh, was largely plagiarized. Uh, she, she drew pretty heavily on, a, on another book that had come out about 15, uh, 12 or 15 years earlier. Um, it, it wasn't, the plagiarism wasn't discovered in her lifetime, but but um, she went back and, and did more original research uh, for the book that became Barracoon. So, was I mean, as, when I looked at the book, I saw that you wrote the book in four parts. Mm-hmm. Why four parts? I, I saw that, you know, looking at it as a former history teacher, mm-hmm. like you divided it up so that people could could understand the relationship to the time. So could you talk a little bit about those four parts and why you chose to do it that way? Certainly, yeah. They the divisions just seem natural. I I have to say that they came in sort of late. Uh, I proposed to my editor when we were we had pretty much finished the text. We had done most of the copy editing. I said, I you know I really think there should be besides chapter breaks, there should be bigger section breaks here. Uh, I had five chapters that cover the situation in West Africa, the, the Clotilda's voyage, everything up through the Civil War. So that, that seemed pretty clearly like a, like a distinct section. Second section covered Reconstruction through, through the 1930s, uh, through the, the end of Kudjo Lewis's life, because Kudjo was the last, one, um, the last one in Mobile to pass away. Uh, then there's a leap 15 years forward, 15, 20 years forward into the 1950s when one of my principal characters um, and a, a good friend and, and 
and somebody I admire, uh, Joe Womack, uh, was growing up in the community. He was born in the, he was born just 15 years after Kojo Lewis died, so um, so Joe became my main vehicle for for talking about the modern history of Africa Town, and uh, so there are a few chapters that cover the community when he was young, and uh, they go through the 90s, and then there's a fourth section that covers developments from basically the past decade uh, when when Joe has become this uh, sort of a warrior for environmental justice. And you also talk about uh, the environmental justice organization uh, that is there in Ramsey Sprague. I, you know, I know him, know his work, and I just thought it was so significant uh, that that he also factors into the modern day history of Africa Town. Could you elaborate a little bit on what his organization and what Ramsey's is doing in that area? Of course, yeah, I I, I admire Ramsey so much. He uh, he first comes up in the book in 2013. He was there at this meeting where there was a plan to to build a another tank farm, a, a, a whole bunch of petroleum tanks near Africa Town. These tanks are enormous. Each one is like as big as a house. Uh, to 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 build these near Africa Town, and at the same time to build uh, an oil pipeline that was going to go through the primary source of drinking water for most of southern Alabama. And Ramsey had been fighting the Keystone XL pipeline. He had a background in, in direct action. And so he came, he came to advise these Mobilians on, on what they could do. And I, I, I find it pretty stirring when he enters the picture there are a lot of people talking about. Uh, there are a lot of white people talking about about their drinking water, and uh, you know, understandably, they don't want they don't want a pipeline going through their their water supply. But but Ramsey steps up and says, "Don't don't forget about these communities like Africa Town and Pritchard. Um, these communities that are these communities of color that have been dealing with pollution forever, you know, as, long, as long as they've been around." And he, and he said. This is environmental racism. We need to recognize it that way. And uh, it was a vocabulary that that even Joe Womack didn't have at the time. Joe Womack, who grew up in Africa Town, he he told me that that later on he, once he started engaging in these protests, he kept hearing the term environmental justice, and he had just gotten a computer, and he went on the internet and he, he was thinking, what the hell is environmental justice? And he. He, he he punched it into Google, and he found this EPA website that explained environmental justice and environmental racism. And he said, "Oh my God! Like they wrote this for us." Uh, but but Ramsey helped. Um, he helped. The, the, the people wanted to do something. Um, he he helped them sort of coalesce their efforts in uh, into a, a targeted program. And they started an organization called MEJAC, Mobile Environmental Justice Action Coalition. And uh, Ramsey's been uh, been a leader in that organization from the beginning. He ended up moving to Mobile um, fr- from, from Texas, and he's dedicated the last 10 years or so of his life uh, to this project full-time. Ramsey, I should mention, is, is Native American. Uh, he comes from a, from a, a, a tribe that has its roots on the Gulf Coast, and um, 
I, I, <laughs> he's he's extremely savvy. Uh, he he interfaces a lot with with the federal government. I know he's got the ear of the the regional director of the EPA, and um, so I, I admire him both for his his moral devotion and for his his savvy as an as an activist. He knows how to get things done. Yes, I, I just thought it was so interesting when I was reading that. I saw so many intersectionalities and, and so many things that were very similar to what I was going through at the time. And when I saw that Ramses had been involved with fighting the Dakota Access Pipeline, I thought, I said, well, he and I could have both been, at, been there at the same time um, when we went to, to fight that pipeline. And I was just so also moved by the fact that a lot of what you write about is, is true of a lot of environmental justice areas. The difference, at least the areas that are dealing with environmental racism, especially if you look throughout the Gulf Coast and look at Cancer Alley, a lot of what you describe I've heard in other places. But what is significant about this book is that the people that are impacted can actually trace their history back to Africa at a certain time. And they can. there's a connection between um, when they were brought from Africa as enslaved people and the end of slavery in the United States. And then that line that is drawn from there to present day, which is different than what we would find in any other area uh, of the uh, of the U.S. So how do you think, what do you think the solutions are? How do, how do we get to justice in communities like Africatown and what you've seen? And what do you think justice looked like for the descendants? Yeah, this is something I th- I've thought about a lot. I think we've all, everybody who has a stake in this story has has thought about a lot. I, I would say that Mobile, as I, as I say in, in my second-to-last chapter, struggles with this question of whether it wants to be more like Charleston, uh, a, a beautiful waterfront city that, that, that bases its economy uh, on tourism and... and markets its its excellent seafood, uh, or if it wants to be more like Houston and, and stake everything on the petrochemical industry. And I have to give Ramsey credit for that. He's the one who who pointed out this distinction to me. And the current leadership of the city um, just just refuses to treat that as a serious question and, and insists that they can have it both ways. And the current mayor's Slogan is that he wants Mobile to be the most business and family friendly city in Mobile, or excuse me, in, in America, um, as, as if there were no tension between those those goals. But in, in Mobile's case, there clearly are. I mean, there's almost no access to the waterfront for for people who live in Mobile because because it's all occupied by heavy industry, and and this plays into the Africatown question because. I think Mobilians have been a little bit reluctant to accept this, but the truth is that this is a city that's very proud of its of aspects of its history, its maritime history, its time under French and Spanish rule, understandably. But you know, it's it's proud of its Mardi Gras traditions. But the, the truth is that there's nothing else in Mobile history that that compares in terms of national and international significance to the story of Africatown, the creation of this, this neighborhood by West Africans who had personally survived the Middle Passage. And so if they were going to 
base their economy more on tourism, it would make sense for, for Africatown to be sort of the centerpiece. And um, the local government does um, make some gestures of support, but, but there's a lot of skepticism in the neighborhood about whether they're really serious. I, I think that if you were serious, what you would do is, is start to get rid of the factories surrounding the neighborhood. You would rezone that property so that, so that the factories there now, the tank farms there now, were not in compliance. And what that would mean was that when their, say, when their tanks aged out and new ones needed to be built, the, the policies would say, sorry, you can't, you can't build a new tank farm here. You can't, you can't install new tanks here. Like, that's it. You're done. And the, the local authorities like to say that this is not constitutional, that it's not, it just simply can't be done legally, and that's not true. <laughs> the, the attorney who knows more about zoning than anybody else in southern Alabama, uh, Wanda Cochran, walked me through this uh, and, and explained to me how it could be done, and the, the truth is that it can. Of course, the city's economy is, is based, so, is, is so dependent on the industry that's already there it it would be really hard for them to do this. And, and I, I think this speaks to why environmental racism is so hard to, to uproot. But that's, I, I think that's what justice looks like. Um, it looks like getting rid of the factories and, 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 and making it possible for this place to really thrive again as a residential area. It would mean building more housing. It would mean it would mean encouraging the growth of, black, of, of independent businesses. There used to be many black-owned businesses um, that were wiped out by, by highway construction. And, um, and it, would mean, it would mean more investment in, in the neighborhood. And I think that's true for similar neighborhoods apart from Africatown, too. It's certainly true for Cancer Alley in Louisiana. And, and, and explain, though, you know, I've, I've actually spent some time with some of the descendants recently. And, and I saw in your book, you talked about what the highway did. And it, could you kind of explain how, um, it, how the, the highway system factored into the story of A- Africatown? Because uh, I know just from my own life experiences how these highways have been built and disrupted uh, Black communities. How did highways factor into um, the building of highways factor into Africatown's history? and where Africatown is today. Yeah, it's a, it's a prevalent phenomenon, as, as we both know. In Africatown's case, uh, after these factories started to be built, um, it, it, more, more and more of them uh, accrued you know, around the neighborhood, and there was a bridge uh, across, across the river uh, close to the neighborhood that they used to transport materials for for the industries in and out um, you know paper mills use them to to bring logs back and forth and that sort of thing so uh, it was a drawbridge but uh, there were there were huge traffic delays it was becoming unworkable for the companies so they wanted a new bigger taller b- bridge built uh, in order to facilitate this this the state highway department had to um, build a bigger highway leading up to it, and uh, it ended up wiping out um, Africatown's whole business corridor. People describe uh, how the neighborhood used to have uh, 
um, grocery stores, movie theaters, hotels. Uh, it had uh, you know bars and nightclubs. It, it had everything that 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 you would need. Um, you know, you could buy. You, it had entertainment and it had it had necessities. Uh, and as I say, most of these shops were owned by by local entrepreneurs, um, by black, black businessmen and women. Uh, of course, the community protested hard when when the state wanted to build this highway through that that corridor. Uh, there was a there was also a viable path that would have required the factories to give up some of their land. Um, there was a time when the state actually favored that idea and was moving in that direction, but the companies hired the former, I think it was the Speaker of the Alabama House, who is now working in private practice as an attorney to lobby against it and have the factory go through Africatown instead. And that campaign was successful. So in the 1980s, they, they were moving forward with this plan. At the same time, there was an effort to get Na- Africatown listed uh, in the National Historic Landmarks Program, um, or at least the National Register of Historic Places. And had it become a landmark, it would have, there would have been protections against against um, these disruptive construction projects. You know, the law would have said you can't destroy any more of this neighborhood. The Reagan administration said, well, we don't really think there's anything left there. It's all just industry now. That was not true. In fact, there were about a dozen houses that had actually been built by the shipmates themselves. Houses built by the people who survived the last slave voyage to the U.S. If that doesn't qualify you for landmark status, then I can't imagine what would. But they never sent a team down um, to do a survey. And so up to the last minute before the construction began, descendants were pleading with the state highway department not to destroy these houses. And I found these letters where the, 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 where an engineer from the state said, look, if you want to pay to relocate the houses, that's fine. But we're not waiting. We have, we have a deadline to start the construction. You know, every day that we delay costs more taxpayer money. So, you know, either move them or, um, or just get out of the way and, and let us bulldoze them. And ultimately, most of the homes were not relocated and, and were destroyed Along with, the, along with the business corridor, and instead of, instead of, uh, a, instead of a, like a walkable, pedestrian-friendly area where you could go get your hair done, you could go see a movie, you could go buy your groceries, they built this five-lane highway, trucks passing through 65 miles an hour, um, broke the back of the neighborhood, and the, and the trucks are carrying hazardous cargo. Um, so again, this is this, this happened in many neighborhoods, but I, I think it's hard to find an example that's more egregious than the one that happened in Africa Town. So in your book, basically what you describe uh, is the failure of Reconstruction, the policies of the Jim Crow era. Uh, you talk about how voting rights were taken away from people of color, uh, the underdevelopment. That, that happened in Mobile around black communities with city services, including plumbing and sewer, which I know so much about, stopped mm-hmm. at the edges of the white communities. And then in the 70s, EPA was created. And then the Dixiecrats started talking about state rights. You know, that, yeah. as you said in your book, that that's the same rhetoric that was used to describe slavery. But now, you know, and we look at all of this and, 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 the, and the continuity there, of all these things that are happening, 
I mean, I want to add something else to that. Mm-hmm. You know, the same type of rhetoric that is being used now to start talk to to to, to even uh, prevent us from talking about this history, to even prevent maybe in the future a book about another book about Africa Town, or your book even being a part of of this this narrative that we need to to discuss so we can get to where we need to be. How do you feel about that in this current time? As you look at all this history and look at, it seems like we've come full circle to go back to where we started. Yeah, thinking about things like like these policies in Florida banning this kind of history from from school curricula. Um, I mean, I, what do you say about it? It's 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 really disheartening. Um, I. Um, you know, I recently wrote a piece for the, the Washington Post about this group, the Afro-American Bicentennial Corporation, that, that was responsible for getting, getting dozens of, of black history sites added to the, the Landmarks program in the 70s. And um, this was leading up to the Bicentennial celebration in 76. And they, these people knew that if they didn't, if they didn't get involved, the, the celebrations were going to be totally... Um, you know, Eurocentric is just going to focus on white people's history, and, and when I, I spoke with the, one of the people who spearheaded this, Vince DeForest, he um, he's he's in his 80s now, and he said it's it's so disheartening to see uh, these arguments about critical race theory and these policies like the one in Florida. Um, it's like he said, I feel like exactly the same way I felt in 1970, um, like we're sometimes it feels as if we haven't made any progress. I mean, in some ways we have, but he said it, it's clear that we're still fighting the same battles. I think it's he's right. very clear. And, and I just wanted to, you know, to also make sure that we talk about the Clotilde mm-hmm. and its significance here, because I think it was during the time uh, you were doing your research that they actually found the, uh, the Clotilde and, and why that is so significant. Yeah, it, it was. Um, I, I was in the early stages of working on my book proposal when I, I was on the phone with Joe Womack and he said, did you hear the news? And I didn't know what he was talking about. And he said, they, they found the ship in the Mobile Delta. Um, the wreckage is still, still mostly intact. So uh, a lot of people, both in Africatown and surrounding Africatown and the descendant community say is that... Um, they're less concerned about the ship itself. They're, what they care about is the people, whether that means for them, the people who are in Africatown now or the story of, of their ancestors. But they see the identification of, of this, this wreckage of the ship as a means toward an end of, of both telling the story and of restoring the community. It, it's hard to imagine a better... I guess a better asset for building this this heritage tourism, uh, I guess industry, than than having the remains of the last the last slave ship. Still unclear whether um, it's going to be dredged up. As I understand, scientists are currently assessing whether that would even be a possibility. We know that if it were, it would be incredibly expensive. Uh, as Jim Delgado, the chief archaeologist, always says. Where could that money be better spent? You know, maybe it could be better spent in Africa Town. Uh, but to their credit, the 
the archaeologists and, and other officials in charge of this have always said, we're not going to make this decision ourselves. We want this decision to be ma- to be made by by the community descendants and 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 the people in the neighborhood. So we'll see what comes of that. Well, that's great. I know that in my conversations with them, oftentimes when people talk about economic development in Africa Town, I saw that you talked about this in the book as well. They make reference to the the National Museum for Peace and Justice in Montgomery and how uh, this could that could be a model for Africa Town in terms of its history and being able to to bring uh, the type of economic development to the area that it doesn't currently have. Do you see a relationship there now that you've written the book between um, what is happening in Montgomery around its history and what could potentially happen in Africa Town? I do. Uh, I believe that within a year of its opening, the the museum and memorial in Montgomery had brought something like $1 billion in economic activity to the city. And in a way, it, it does feel crass to talk about it in terms of dollars and cents, because the, obviously that project is not, it's not primarily a money-making venture. It's, it's, it feels like a, a sacred experience to go through it. Um, at the same time, you know, our, our friends in Africa Town are are very savvy, as I said, and they know that that they have to appeal to more than people's moral sensibilities. They also have to have a a plan for how this could actually work. And they they you know they've they they're sort of saying, look, there's another way. Like if you got rid of the factories, it's not it's not as if you would just lose all that money. It's there's there's an alternative. There's another way of you know bringing in tax revenue and spurring economic activity. Um, and, but I think they also take inspiration from the museum and memorial in Montgomery on the level of the kind of experience that it that it provides to people who visit, which, as I said, is a, a very stirring experience. And it's encouraging to see that there's such a big audience for this this sort of thing. You know, I was at the, the Smithsonian African American Museum uh, pretty recently, just, just a few weeks ago, on a Saturday, and I had to reserve my ticket weeks in advance, and then when I got there, I had to, you know, even having a ticket, I had to wait for 20 minutes or something just to see the first, in a long line, just to see the the, the first uh, the first exhibit in the museum, um, and and I, I mean, I was encouraged to see that. I was happy <laughs> to be waiting. I was happy to see that there were so many people there because it it, it reminded me, in black and white, this crowd seemed pretty evenly mixed, and. It reminded me that um, I think that if they build something like this in Africatown, people will come. And um, the experience in Montgomery really shows us that. Well, this is my final question. Um, and this is one that I thought about asking earlier, but I think this is a great time to ask it. And I'd like to know, how do you feel? Tell me how you feel as a white journalist you know, having to navigate these complications to be able to bring all of this out in the open. Yeah, that's that's something I've thought about from the very moment that I conceived the idea for the book. It, it's something I still think about a lot. You know, it's not as if there were journalists of color queuing up to do this. It's not as if I was pushing anybody else aside, and I, I would not would not have done that. Um, but I felt like if I didn't do it, it wasn't going to happen. So what I did was approach 
people I had met in Africatown, community leaders and others, and said, look, I have this idea for a book, but I'm this white journalist. I don't even have a connection to Alabama. What would you think about me doing this? And the response I got pretty much universally was, look, we need all the help we can get. So if you're going to tell their story in a responsible way, we would love to have you. So with that in mind, I, I moved down. And then I think that the, the gesture of moving down, the, the, this, I guess the seriousness and dedication that that showed helped me to continue to build trust when I was there. Th- there were people who were um, a bit skeptical of me at first. It was, for the most part, people in the community did not, they, they really were more open with me than I had any reason to expect them to be. But there, there were, it, it, often it was, it was people who don't live in Africatown itself, um, but who are concerned about the community and have a stake in its future, who were, were concerned about me coming down as a, as a white journalist and an outsider and telling the story. But um, one of them, um, I, 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 I don't know if he was skeptical or not, but I, I think he might have been, is Curran Jackson, who was one of the, the uh, who's one of the stars of the film Descendant. Uh, the, the Netflix documentary Descendant, and also the co-writer. He's a folklorist and a professor at the university in Mobile. And he and I have gotten to be good friends now. And he said to me recently that, that when people like me and, and Margaret Brown, who's the director of the film, um, that when we've sort of joined forces with people in Africatown to get the story out, that it reminds him of the Civil Rights March from Selma, <coughs> to Montgomery when when black and white people joined together to protest this injustice. And I, I found that really touching. Um, I think I'm never going to forget that remark. And that I do feel like that was the spirit in which I, I undertook this. So um, all along, I tried to take measures to make sure that I was doing this in the most ethical and responsible way I could. I... I tried to raise up the voices of the people in the community, and I also had um, people of color read different portions of, of the book uh, t- to give me feedback. And I have to say that the, the responses I've gotten from descendants, from people in the neighborhood, uh, and, and from, other, from others in Mobile has been uh, very positive so far. Well, I... Thank you so much. I think this is an excellent book and everyone should read it. And those especially that have watched the film Descendants, I think it's an excellent companion. And for those of us that are interested in environmental justice and how we get to justice, I think reading about this uh, provides a great inspiration for those of us that are trying to, to get to where we need to be in terms of addressing the fact that there are so many communities that are under-resourced and overburdened and Africa Town help us to understand why that came to be. And also as part of the solution, thank you so much for writing this book. Thank you, Nick. Oh, thank you so much for joining me on this interview. It was an honor. Um, I, I admire your work too. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's Afterwards podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, listen to C-SPAN's podcast about books. Learn about the latest nonfiction books and best-selling authors. In each episode, we report on bestsellers lists and book reviews from around the country. You'll also hear authors talking about their latest books and insider interviews with nonfiction book publishing industry experts. 